Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Dr. Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Dr. Megan Victor about her research on commensal politics, aka brothels, bars, and business in the archaeological record. She's an assistant professor and Mellon Fellow at Queens College, CUNY, New York, and completing the group today is Emily Long. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I'm super excited about today's topic. Uh, But before we jump into picking your brain, Megan, can you just give our listeners a quick, you know, couple minute intro into who you are and what your research interests are? Absolutely. So the title did a pretty good job of summarizing my research interests. But uh, I'm a historical archaeologist, first and foremost. So I look at archaeological sites from the year about 1500 onward. Mm -hmm. And I focus on the archaeology of alcohol and the way that alcohol affects all of our interactions. And we have interacted with alcohol in very similar ways from the deep past up to the present, but so often it gets left out of the narrative of historical archaeology, except to look at it as just a thing to buy and sell. And so my research really tries to fix that by looking at the people and putting the people back into the taverns, the saloons, and the bars. That sounds super fascinating. I love it. (laughs) I'm very excited. And you mentioned uh, the, the words commensal politics. Would Mm -hmm. you mind telling our listeners, what does that actually mean? Yeah, absolutely. So commensal politics itself is a short word that has a big meaning kind of packed into it. So technically, it's defined as the structured sharing of food and drink with the ultimate goal of social negotiation. Now, that itself is still really a mouthful and super academic. And so at heart, yep, at heart, what commensal politics refers to is it refers to what happens when people get together with food and drink in front of them and they have other goals in mind aside from just eating. And so it's the conversations that take place and the goals in their minds and the way that they go about achieving those goals with the food and drink. So buying someone around in hopes that they might loosen up a bit and think of you more favorably, taking someone to a really nice restaurant to impress them. All of those things are commensal politics. So it's a business lunch or business dinner. We do it today with a business lunch or someone you have a crush on, you take them out to drink or you take them out for coffee. All of these are commensal politics and they're the exact same thing where you're using food and drink to get to some sort of goal. And it's the exact same reason why feasts were held in mead halls and why business dealings took place in seaside taverns. I know your research um, for your PhD, which I think you finished a couple years ago, was looking particularly at two locations island called smutty nose island which can i just say like that name is amazing that's <laughs> nice yes um and also highland city mm-hmm. and in my own research i've been looking some at kind of like network connections and like in terms of economics what are the connections between what we think of as like frontier or remote areas mm-hmm. and you know economic trade centers such as as cities or markets Um, And I was hoping that you could kind of elaborate a little bit more on the role of bars or brothels for negotiating those connections. That question is like a dream come true because it combines (laughs) all of my research, right? So I look at these these frontier spaces and argue that they, even though they're sort of on these, these peripheries, they don't need to be given peripheral attention. And so often they have been, they've just kind of been cast aside. But it's because of the commensal politics, particularly the ones you know that take place not so much in someone's house, but in taverns, in saloons, because of those, they are crucial and they end up becoming major players in larger world trade systems and larger trade networks, they become these crucial nodes 
in mm-hmm. systems of trade. So I'm happy to to go into that further, but I just, you made my day by asking. Uh, <laughs> so, and now I'm going to try my best not to nerd out too much. No, nerd, nerd out. out. This nerd, is yeah. a space for nerding. <laughs> well, that, that, is, that is good then. I'll just live here forever. You know, um, <laughs> you're absolutely right that my dissertation really did look at these two frontier locales and it looked at the way that they marshaled their resources both financial and natural, to enter into larger trade networks and to actually control them largely in their favor. And so the first example uh, is the fantastically named Smutty Nose Island, um, which was just a delight to type like 5,000 times. In the- <laughs> I mean, if you're going to pick a site, at least pick one where you love the name. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. But anyways, um, what they did there is that they basically decided that the general system of fishing that had been in existence as a fishing plantation, which was literally a planting of people, uh, was not going to work for them because they noticed that someone at the top got all of the money and everyone else did all of the labor. And so, so capitalism. <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, and so... <laughs> Or more like capitalism's even more evil big brother, mercantilism, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the fishermen at Smutty Nose Island and at the larger Isles of Trolls, which is the archipelago of nine islands of which Smutty Nose Island is a part, they basically decided, look, we are master fishermen, so we are going to fit the term. And so what they did is they formed this loosely organized confederation of master fishermen, And rather than answering to a single overseer who then answered to an absentee landlord, they teamed up and they said, look, I'm an amazing, amazing fisherman. And you're an amazing navigator. You know exactly where the fish are at all times. And this guy over here, he is amazing at preparing the fish quickly and efficiently. Let's team up and we don't need all of this other nonsense. And so they did. And as a result, they were so successful that the world price of cod in the 17th century was set against the cod coming from the Isles of Shoals. Oh, wow. Yep. And so they also used their unique environment. The shoals themselves are these sort of austere, rocky, craggy islands with a lot of grass just kind of clinging on for dear life and not always successful at it. Uh, and there's all these winds that, that blow around. And so they developed a technique called dunning, where they took advantage of that wind. And they would flay the fish, and then they would hang them out to dry, almost like burping them, using this wind in the sun. And by doing this, they were able to dry out the fish and use less salt and get each fish to be thinner. So they got more into a barrel. So everyone was getting more bang for their buck. And fish emerged from the barrel wherever they ended up being the general rule was that you would take some fish and you would boil it and then it would kind of plump back up and then you would eat it because actually eating salted fish I don't know if you've done it but it tastes like death um yep it's super unpleasant like actual salted fish I've had lots of bakayao yes exactly exactly right but even bakayao itself has already been boiled once um, and so, you know, but I, I remember they were selling it at the, the salt fish museum in Iceland and you could literally just take a, a bite out of like a strip of it uncured and unboiled. And it, like, I feel like I'm wincing from it many years later. Um, so what they do is they would boil it. And then the, the goal was that you would have something called green fish, which sounds something, but would be as close as possible to fresh vegetables picked at this because they hardly used any salt because of this dunning procedure and because they were master fishermen working on their own there was no one to tell them uh don't do that then the people aren't getting their money they just did what they wanted and so all of these deals were made in the tavern and i will get to that in a moment but you know these deals about who should pair up with whom that was done in the tavern and then as people started to realize wow The shoals really have the best stuff. Everyone wanted it. And they wanted it, you know, from the Mediterranean all the way up to Northern Europe. And then it was also exported all throughout North America. 
And so those agreements were also made in the tavern. And we know this largely because we found the tavern archaeologically, and its archaeological signature is wildly different from anything else happening at the Shoals. And it really speaks to a lot of these under-table deals. Um, it's almost like you're letting the the true experts make the decisions rather than having some absentee manager who who doesn't know what things are like day in, day out, actually creates a better product. It, it's shock and surprise. It, that is exactly <laughs> what happens, yes. And as a result, you know, the shoals were incredibly successful and a lot of those fishermen uh, retired to the mainland and ended up being some of the most well-known and well-established families in New England even today. And the other thing is that whenever authorities from the mainland tried to come out and regulate the shoalers, they were really hostile to that. And so they uh, famously would send the regulators back naked in a boat. (laughs) They usually remembered to give them their oars. Um, And the thing is, is they're about 10 miles out from the mainland. So that is a long boat ride with no clothing on. And so it only took sending a couple of these law enforcement individuals back naked a couple of times before the mainland just stopped uh, because they, they just realized it wasn't working and this was humiliating and problematic and it made them look bad. And so they just kind of left them alone. And they noticed the more they agitated with them, the more problematic the shoulders were and the more they left them alone, the more the shoulders just were polite, if that makes sense, in that they didn't pick fights with people on the mainland. They're just sort of like, leave us alone and you won't have an issue. Yeah, they just kind of got on with the business of whatever they were doing. That's right. And so they were they were total pains in the butt to the law enforcement people when they sort of felt they were sticking their noses and they didn't belong. But they also didn't go out of their way to pick fights with the mainland. They were kind of like, you stay over there, we're going to stay over here. Everything is good that way. Um, they, uh, they also were known to harbor pirates. They would give them respite because they basically felt, you know what, we are in charge of this Island and we do a brisk business. We have a hell of a tavern here and you need a place to hang out. We also hate the people on the mainland. Come chill here. Um, and they were also the place where a lot of trading ships would stop before heading into the mainland the next day. So they would drop anchor there because it was a deep water harbor, which meant that they always had the latest news. And so they could trade not only in this amazing, amazing cod, but they could also trade cod immediately with these ship captains for goods that normally would have to go onto the mainland and be tariffed and all that. They could also trade in information. So when you're looking at the, at the shoals in this tavern, at the archaeological site, you mm-hmm. have all these amazing stories. How do you see it reflected then in the archaeological record? Absolutely. It's a really good question, and it is the right question to ask. Because, really? okay, well, no, truly, right? Because you can't go in just saying, well, this, you know, we were told this happened, so it must have. You know, we need the data. And um, it was actually the data were so strange that I started looking into the history more. Mm-hmm. So, in didn't have to worry about sort of the history bias in my interpretation because I started to dig into the history more, no pun intended, when I realized that the data were speaking for themselves and were being kind of wackadoodle for <laughs> lack of a better word, right? So uh, the first time I was out, we were just doing survey out at the site. Uh, we were not walking around per se, but doing uh, small excavations. Mm-hmm. And then it's expanded out into trenches. And as we got closer to the shoreline, we started to see a scattering that is pretty typical of what you would see for a tavern, in that we started to see an increase of ceramics, glassware, food-related items, and smoking-related items. And this background is important because without knowing where the tavern was, we wouldn't be able to compare tavern and Uh, Mm non-tavern. So finding this sort of spray pattern kind of around the edge of where the tavern ended up being, uh, I ended up going with a couple of crew members over to where we hypothesized the tavern would be based on the old shoreline. And we found it down to the lock off the door, uh, which was really neat. And 
Inside, though, this is what really answers your question, is that all of a sudden we were finding very high status goods that looked nothing like what we had been excavating in the entire rest of the state, in the domestic area and in the fish processing area. There were things that were needed to get on with daily life, but nothing compared to what we found in the tavern. We found a lot of imported goods and not just access to imports, which is already speaking to a status, but a lot of really fine, high status things that completely shattered what you might think of the income for these fishermen if you were to look just at their domestic spaces. Because the domestic spaces had a fairly mean uh, appearance to them. They were very utilitarian. Again, it was just, you know, sort of all the stuff you needed to get by. Whereas the tavern was, was lavish and it had Chinese porcelains and this is a really big deal in the 17th and 18th century. And it had uh, tingles enamel wares from England and France and Portugal and Spain. And it had slipwares from Italy and it had glassware with colors shot through it. And it had custom made ceramics. So there is a type of stoneware from Germany. This one is festival. And generally you see it in blue, gray, purple, but you could, if you had enough clout, you could commission other colors. And we mm -hmm. found all white Westerwald there. Oh, wow. And I recently went to an exhibit on stoneware, and there was a whole all white anchored there. And the exhibit waxed eloquent about how important this was and how much of a big deal it was have this all white tankard because this meant that literally someone had to reach out and say I don't like your normal colors I want it white and so oh. the fact that we found one there means that someone had some substantial influence and yeah out of curiosity with that um, I know for some of the sites that I've worked with just out west in the United States if mm -hmm. there's um, finer wares porcelain whatnot that usually indicated the presence of women is that indicative with this type of ceramic or is it just like even the guys were like, look at my fancy pottery? Right, so this is not the presence of women. We actually know there were very few women out at this site. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an awesome question to ask. And it does make things a little more complicated when we get to Highland City. But with this, it really is more like, look at my shiny, look how badass I am. <laughs> I do it today where they're like, look at my car, look how shiny, look at all the colors, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Or they'll be like, look at my computer, look at all the shiny, look at all the color. Like, we still do it. It's just that... The pottery. <laughs> in the, in the, well, right. So, like, in the 17th and 18th century, though, where, like, we really didn't have kind of quite the same level of toxic masculinity that you have now, mm -hmm. it's totally okay to be like, I'm a super badass. Behold my pink coat. And everyone else would be like, you are a badass. I like your pink coat. You know? <laughs> and nowadays, if someone's wearing it, they're like, you, you know, you get all this hate. And so you have to kind of think about the time period, right, where one of the ways you showed how wealthy you were was lavishly in your clothing and in what you ate and drank out of. And so to be able to say, like, I have this badass drinking mug and it's all white because I'm just that cool, that is something that really would just show that you have, you know, that will almost show how macho you were as a guy because it would be like, I have all this money, therefore I'm amazing. Yeah, when I was really surprised to hear just some of the the breadth of origins for the material that you were talking about as well, because oftentimes when we think of these frontier spaces, we think of them as spaces that like one or two ships might come to, but it just sounds like with the wealth of material that you were finding in these custom ceramics that you're talking about, that there just must have been so many spokes on the wheel that kind of emanate from the node that was Smutty Nose Island and that oh, archipelago. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they were deeply connected to the Mediterranean, all over the North Atlantic. Uh, there was trade with sort of the mid-Atlantic area, you know, so Virginia, Maryland. And we know that we've even found like, Virginian clay pipes at Smutty Nose Island. So, you know, there's all kinds of trade that's going on. 
you're deeply, deeply connected. And the thing is, is that so often we've had these thinking models of if you're not a capital city, you really don't matter. And that is just not true. Here, what they lacked in political weight, they made up for with economic weight. And so they were able to leverage that weight, that abundance of natural resources combined with the way that they structured themselves. So they ended up having quite a lot of economic power and economic savvy to get what they needed. And they sort of did it almost outside of the political system in a way, or at least they made the political system reckon with them, you know, in terms of hiding pirates or sending back officers naked, you know, things like that. And while we don't have, you know, archaeological evidence of like a piece of glass that commemorates sending back someone naked, we certainly have a lot of primary source documents that talk about that and sort of curse the shoulders. And that matches with the primary source documents of the shoulders themselves. We're like, yeah, we totally did this. We're awesome. That was hilarious. This just sounds like such a such a fascinating site. Um, unfortunately, we are done with our first 20-minute segment. The time has absolutely flown with this topic. Um, so we're going to go to break. But when we come back, we will continue talking about um, saloons and brothels and business and commensal politics. And I can't wait. Sounds good. <laughs> Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by Dr. Megan Victor talking to us about her work with commensal politics. In the first segment, we talked a little bit about her work on Smutty Nose Island. And in the second segment, we're going to move on to chat a little bit about Highland City, um, which is the second site for Megan's um, dissertation research. Megan, can you just tell us a little bit about that site and what you found? Sure, absolutely. So Highland City is located in southwestern Montana and it is on government property. It is on land owned by the Forest Service inside uh, Montana's largest national forest, which is the Beaverhead Deer Lodge National Forest. And so it is located at an elevation of between 7,000 and 10,000 feet. It was a ghost town, or it is a ghost town now, I should say, and it used to be a thriving mining town. Over a million dollars in gold was pulled out of the mines all around Highland City. And at one time, it contained a fifth of Montana Territory's population, although its history has been completely forgotten since. And so that is where my research largely wants to not only sort of put it back into the narrative of Montana history, but also make sure that it's remembered by more than just the inhabitants, descendants, who were all very excited that someone was going to be working on the town that their family had originally worked in. That's so cool. So this sounds like another kind of economic powerhouse, but that was also a, a frontier space. Yeah, that's right. So it was conveniently located in the middle of nowhere, but surrounded... <laughs> but surrounded by gold, uh, as well as some silver and garnets and copper. And so this definitely was all to its advantage. And what's really neat about it is that we know it was an economic powerhouse because it was worth it for the Postal Service to actually make a postal stop at Highland City. And to kind of put this into perspective, while that sounds maybe like no big deal, When you think about the time period and the location, what this meant was that you basically had to drag a beleaguered mule up to an elevation of 10,000 feet just to dump off the mail. Whereas a lot of other remote places had to go somewhere else to get the mail, and that was just a hazard of being remote. So Highland City was enough of a powerhouse that it was worth it to hike all the way up, deliver mail, packages, etc., 
and it was the place to which other people went to collect their mail from even more remote locations. Okay. Um, that is really cool. Um, so I know kind of in, in the break before, uh, when we weren't recording, you mentioned that one of the things about um, Highland City that was a bit different than um, Smutty Nose Island was that you had uh, found some evidence of a brothel there. And I have to admit that I'm like very curious as to what that evidence looks like. Like how do you identify a brothel? Absolutely. So with Highland City, we knew that at its height, it had 10 saloons and five dance halls. And these dance halls were brothels. And was that a euphemism for brothel? It was. Absolutely. And so it really was a place that you could dance, um, perhaps perpendicular to the floor down on the lower level. (laughs) Uh, But yes, it was definitely a euphemism. And so as far as the archaeological evidence for the brothels that were found at Highland City, the one that we found was actually right next to our largest saloon assemblage. And so... This either means that we found a saloon and a dance hall next to each other, not a surprise that you would have sort of a business district, or we found evidence that the saloon also had some prostitution happening, which again, not a surprise. Um, And so what we found were two things. The first is we found the leather sole, it was sort of a mixture of leather and rubber, of a dancing shoe, and it was a woman's dancing shoe. So we found a heel to the to the shoe. And the second thing that we found, and this may seem counterintuitive, but we found a large amount of really trendy and quite expensive patent medicine that were aimed toward women. And this is because with a lot of brothels, and a lot of scholars who write on brothels can certainly talk about this in more detail. I sort of look at it from the the alcohol commensal politics aspect, but there was this notion that the women needed to be clean and beautiful. And you kind of can understand where that's coming from. You know, if you think about the profession of women working in a brothel, you don't want to have it be abundantly clear what it is you do all the time. You want to be alluring and you want to be seen as the right choice. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things is that these women often did not drink in the traditional way because men still wanted to have these fantasies of women as as clean and ultra feminine and, you know, Mm -hmm. swigging beer or swigging whiskey was not ultra feminine, especially for high Victorian ideals of the second half of the 19th century. Oh, yeah. But but you still have women who, A, wanted access to alcohol, and B, were often dealing with quite a lot of physical uncomfort, whether that is, you know, discomfort, rather, whether that is just sort of uncomfortable treatment by people or venereal diseases or just the diseases that come from living in the 19th century at an elevation of seven to 10,000 feet. And so a lot of these patent medicines served a double duty because not only did they speak to the presence of a woman who was focused on caring for her health because they were medicines and they were often in very striking, beautiful bottles. And so there was no shame in having them you know, on a table they were in colors, you know, amethysts and reds and blues and pinks. But this spoke not only to protecting one's health, but they often were 80% alcohol. And so this was a great way to numb the pain and to get drunk. Um, and so these patent medicines are often found outside of brothels, and there is really no difference here. So we had the dancing shoe, we had the patent medicines in abundance, and then we also have what we think is sort of the nozzle portion to a syringe. Oh no. Okay. And <laughs> I heard the oh no. And then, uh, but again, you have to think about this as focusing on cleanliness. So the syringes were used not only for things like venereal diseases, 
but also for douching and for remaining clean and for sometimes people would even perfume themselves and so while we always like to think of the most disgusting horrible things possible you have to realize that if someone was seen as utterly foul they would not be very successful in their business mm -hmm. so you needed to be clean and alluring and so so much time was actually spent on preparation of the body in all aspects and that's something that i think often gets lost in a lot of the sensationalism when people just think about prostitution is they they just focus on the fact that like oh these are people having sex I'm like well yes but they needed this to be a regular pastime for them that was more than just something they would do every now and then this was their job and so they needed this to be sustainable so they needed to watch their own health they needed to do things that would help with pain they needed to do things that were seen as both recreational, i.e. drinking the patent medicines that were alcoholic, but also proper. And so they were under incredible scrutiny all the time. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, and I don't know if you have an answer to this question as, as you are, like you said, looking more at the commensal politics and alcohol drinking side of it. But I remember reading probably over a year now, um, some some research on French prostitutes in the interwar years between World War One and World War Two that was particularly looking at quality of life uh, as well as length of life, and that just a lot of these women were were picking up venereal diseases and did have a a shorter quantity of life as well, and that you know drives home I guess the hearing about all the different medicines that they may have been taking um and the desire for alcohol um that it would have been a, a hard life still definitely not glamorous yeah i mean it definitely would have been a hard life and a lot of the funds that they would receive would be used to put back into their craft right into into makeups into medicines into clothing it was kind of a you know it was a constant battle and there were these different sort of classifications if you will of uh, brothels. And so only a few really kind of had it very well off, you know, in, in the very high end parlor houses, uh, where they were very well protected and well, well paid, were they really the best off, but nobody in a 19th century gold town would be living the sort of standard of life that we would see as acceptable today. We've just sort of adjusted and definitely have a trend toward a lot more sort of comfort now. Life was really rough, even in a wealthy, gold-producing town like Highland City. I was wondering, so you hear that like prostitutes have like a like traditionally a passive presence in these like western gold towns whereas the reality is like a lot of the madams and prostitutes actually played a really big role in the mm -hmm. towns not necessarily all these towns but I'm wondering can you see like this exchange of ideas and power and whatnot within these dance halls that you see within the taverns I think that that's a fantastic question I think there's definitely some evidence of this power exchange because a lot of these patent medicines that are getting brought in are not just made by random person down the street in in apothecary they are name brands they are well-known name brands and they're often getting imported in from new england and that is quite a journey for a medicine bottle to have to make especially when during the 19th century, everyone and their brother was coming up with patent medicines. And so to be able to have the economic pulling power to acquire things that are produced and bottled on the East Coast and the Northeast, and then have that sent through various shipping channels all the way to the Mississippi, and then from the Mississippi to the Missouri, and then overland by oxen all the way up the mountain to Highland City itself. That is not a 
cheap process and that is not anything other than labor intensive. And so that's a lot of economic pulling power to be able to have that. And so we can see it that way, you know, once again, sort of follow the alcohol and follow the imports. Mm-hmm. And so the same way that we have a wide variety of imported alcohols in the saloons, we do have this wide variety of patent medicines. Is there any sort of evidence that there were other women there? Because you said on, on Spudding Nose Island that there weren't a lot of women full stop yeah, so it's at Smutty Nose Island, you know, for most of it, there really weren't too many women. Toward the end, they started, once there was a permanent settlement, they started, uh, the fishermen started bringing their wives. And it was kind of like, a, you can come now that all the crazy is over, you know, and then, then they all sort of settled onto the mainland at the end. Um, whereas here, this was full families. Um, and so you had a, the, the vast majority, again, was still going to be a bunch of single prospectors and miners. But then you had the standard mining camp followers. So you had women looking to wed prospectors and miners. You had prostitutes. You had uh, laundresses you, and seamstresses. But we see evidence of domestic life on a much larger scale here at Highland once it starts really getting established. So gold is first found in 1866. By the 1870s, gold is in abundance and we really start to have a town fully laid out and there is a domestic area. And we see this in the form of having quite a lot of sort of cups and plates and cutlery and such that would just indicate an actual household going about its business as opposed to a more transient individual who is checking out the diggings and then moving on to another place. There's just the material culture is very different for a temporary kit versus someone who is established and actually has cupboards full of dishes. Mm-hmm. And so this lets us know we definitely have families and it lines up with the oral history about people talking about, yes, my family was there until the town busted and then they moved down to the base of the mountain, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so we can see it, especially, you know, you talk about women, we can see it, especially in the ceramics, not so much in the glass in terms of drinking glasses and such, but we really see it in the ceramics where we have a lot of teaware that is leaning more toward patterns that were seen as fashionable to have in the household at the time. And so this doesn't mean that men wouldn't drink out of them, which is something I feel like, again, we talked a little about that toxic masculinity beforehand. Mm-hmm. We really need to stress that like men would drink out of these teacups. But it was the kind of thing where in order to have the proper Victorian house setting, plate setting or place setting on the table, you really needed to follow these certain rules. And that was to this sort of Anglo-American mindset. And so we have a lot of dishes and cups and plates that are definitely trying to do that. They're trying to follow the high Victorian rules of proper etiquette. Mm -hmm. And you generally don't follow that if you're, you know, sort of, again, a a single man going from place to place, but it's very crucial if you are keeping up the home. And trying Mm -hmm. to make an attractive home for a lady, because I'm sure there were a lot more men than women. So there were a lot more men than women. Look at my porcelain ladies. I mean, it's true, you know, mail order brides were definitely a thing all throughout the 19th century and all throughout Montana. We don't have any documentary evidence for Highland City that mail order brides specifically went there, but in several towns in western Montana, they certainly did arrive there, you know, sort of wealthy man seeking bride and then complete stranger shows up. And so you would want to say, look, I'm prepared. I'm a real man. I'm not just a minor. I am prepared to, you know, have a real household by Victorian standards. And so that includes setting table properly and following all of the necessary etiquette. So with there, oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just curious, because of how connected Highland City was um, with getting, you know, post-delivered, do the, the patterns that you're seeing in terms of the social materials that you're finding, the the ceramics, the teacups, do they mirror the same patterns that you're seeing as 
indicative of wealth and status elsewhere in the country? Or is there some some personal choice of I like this pattern more than that pattern? That's a really good question. So we definitely have sort of the standard imported English ceramics, sort of ironstones, and then we have ironstones and granite wares from Ohio. It was a big manufacturing area for them by the 19th century. So we're definitely getting um, these sort of Anglo-American ceramics that are kind of par for the course at a lot of these locations. But the interesting imports are once again found at the saloons. And so you really have in the domestic area, you're still getting stuff that's kind of par for the course for a typical 19th century, you know, late 19th century household. Some things are a little bit higher status than expected. And it shows that we've got money flowing in this town. So we have, you know, a little bit more lusterware in a few places and a few pieces that are a little more decorative than you might expect out in the middle of nowhere. But for the most part, it matches up with sort of the standard domestic assemblage for the American West. I can't believe I asked a question about ceramics. (laughs) I I promise I will not blame you. (laughs) No, but it was, I mean, it's a good question, you know, but once again, I really wanted to look at the difference between the domestic and the saloon to see, because, you know, I was interested in seeing this commensal politics thing, does it really stand out in frontier spaces? Because commensal politics happen everywhere, Mm -hmm. but they seem to really stand out in frontier spaces in the 17th and 18th century, where it's sort of like you have one standard and then it spikes into this sort of crazy, look at all of the shinies that I can buy to woo you to do whatever it is I'm trying to convince you to do inside the walls of the drinking space. Um, and so I wanted to see if that was a thing in the 19th century too, or if by then with the increase in materials and conspicuous consumption in the drop in prices for a lot of ceramics and such, if that just didn't hold the same way. And it turns out we don't see it in the ceramic assemblage at all. So the ceramic assemblage no longer really becomes the ultimate indicator for wealth and status. So I can't just say, oh yeah, that's a super, super pricey ceramic. Look at it hanging out there in the tavern. Instead, what we have in the saloons is we see this import power and this ability to show off and to, to sort of peacock around with how much money you have and to impress others. We see it in the glass assemblage and we see it especially in the alcohol related glass assemblage. So not only do we see it in sort of the drinking glasses at the saloon that, you know, some of them had some pretty nice tumblers and such, but we see it in the form, especially of French champagne getting brought to Highland City. And we know it's French champagne uh, because we got really lucky. And generally, when you find a wine bottle in the archaeological record, you know it's a wine bottle. And that's about as far as you can go. It's often really difficult to tell if it's a champagne bottle or a wine bottle because by the time the contents are gone, it can be really tough to test. Mm -hmm. And the shape looks about the same. However, we found uh, in our saloon assemblage, we found quite a lot of these wine bottle-esque things, but one of them still had foil wrapped around it. And then next to it in the ground was a piece of foil that said REM right on it. That is so cool. And so that lets us know that this wasn't just, you know, some sort of champagne with like a lowercase c. This was actual champagne from REM in France, and this foil had come right off of the bottle it was hanging out, and it's just that the foil had detached from hanging out in the midden, and you know, which is a, an archaeological term for just a bunch of trash in one spot. Um, but we were elated, and it really proved that these were champagne bottles, and they were all identical, the bottles. Uh, two were whole, and the rest were um broken but in very large pieces but since they were all identical and one of them was definitely you know french champagnes and rem it let us know that they all were and they were very different from any other wine bottles we found 
So this one saloon was really, really doing a brisk business to be able to import this all the way from them because it's a huge distance. And it's that same yeah, import power that we were talking about with the, um, with the patent medicine, where again, you have to figure it's now got to cross an ocean, make it to a major shipping center, then make it to the center of the country, travel by river, then travel by land to get to Highland. So this is some some pretty fancy um, saloons that we were, we we're talking about. That unfortunately does bring us to the end of our second segment, although I'm absolutely loving this. Um, <laughs> and when we come back, we will chat some more about fancy champagne, maybe, because who doesn't like a glass of bubbly? <laughs> That's right. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There are so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been chatting with Megan Victor about her work with commensal politics, both in Montana and off the coast of Maine. And while we did kind of focus the first two segments a bit on past research, we want to transition into current and future research focuses. And and Megan, you mentioned in the break that you were particularly uh, interested in a project on Molly houses. And I will totally admit that that's not a term that I had heard before. So can you just, um, you know, educate us all a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So Molly houses were safe spaces for gay men and for cross-dressing individuals in the 18th century English colonial world. And they usually operated in back rooms or upstairs rooms of inns and taverns in both England and England's colonies. And they operated under constant threat of really, really gruesome death. And they did it anyways because of the need for community, the need for connection, and the need for people to realize that they're not alone. And my Molly House project would be the first ever archeological exploration of a Molly House. And I find it crucial to do this work, not only to counteract narratives that say that conceptions of LGBTQ identity really didn't even begin until the 20th century or the late 19th century as some researchers in sexology and such like to say, but to show that there is a history for the LGBT community stretching back into the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And because this existed in both England and England's colonies, it's another facet of American history that really ought to be told too. And it's a way for present day members of the LGBTQ community to be able to see representation of themselves in early American colonial history. It's fascinating. And where are you hoping um, for your focus to be uh, to excavate uh, a Molly house? So I have several goals. The first one is to go based on all the documentary evidence that I have to work with uh, local teams have already started, you know, reaching out and everything in London, where we have sort of confirmed known Molly houses to get what would be known as like an established center or metropole kind of Molly house. Uh, there were hundreds of Molly houses uh, in England, and quite a few of them were in London. And so that would be a really good control where we would have enough documentary evidence to be able to say, look, here's what it looks like at the heart of the colonial enterprise. But then my main focus is to then take that the way that so many people have compared tavern assemblages in England to those in England's colonies. I would like to do the exact same thing with Molly houses to see what stays the same and what differs. And so I'd really like to look in New York 
in Williamsburg, Virginia, uh -huh. in Charleston, South Carolina, because this allows me to tap on each of the different sort of areas and likely, hopefully in Boston as well. This touches on all of the different facets of England's colonial enterprise in North America while staying still within the United States for this initial focus, but it gives me good solid comparative data to look at sort of the banks and shipping connections that are present in New York to look at the heavy trade, especially based in and among fishing and whaling and shipbuilding in a place like Boston, and then to look at the very different politics of the South, and especially the way that places like Williamsburg, Virginia, and Charleston, South Carolina differ from colonies in the North, but also sort of to do intra-regional comparisons and to see the way that Williamsburg and Charleston differ. So I would be interested, and I realize that this is kind of in, in early stages, but there are some very well-defined norms of femininity around that time period. Mm -hmm. um, it would be interesting to see how much you know, gender is something that is constantly like being created. And obviously today we look at things like RuPaul's Drag Race that has become very mainstream and, you know, slang and terminology has made its way into kind of the more, more mainstream usage and whether or not any of the, the patterns or, um, behaviors or, you know, new styles that were tried out, whether that could still really influence the mainstream. I realize this is, you know, perhaps speculation at this point, but has me thinking. Absolutely. So I always make a point when examining the archaeological record to look at not so much women, but femininity. And so earlier when you were asking, you know, were there women at the site, I could definitively answer that because I had documentary records that literally told me whether or not there were women. And so that was a key thing that helped me answer the question. And then the archaeological record, you know, nicely supported that. But the other thing that's always important to look at is these sort of gendered performances. And that's exactly what was happening in Molly houses. In fact, Within a Molly house, you had extreme performances of femininity. And so what this means is that there were often these scenes that would take place. So it wouldn't just be that people would dress up and that was it. They would go and they would often enact elaborate scenes such as a wedding or getting together to take tea or even giving birth to a child. And so often this was done while wearing high court dress, which was seen as sort of the epitome of femininity. And this was done obviously based on one's economic ability. So you would mimic court dress to the extent that you could, mm -hmm. but the ultra femme nature of it does make it difficult in the archaeological record, because at first you would just see what looked like a tremendous amount of female articles still preserved. And, you know, so this would be, you know, pins and buttons and things like that that could make their way into the archaeological record. But that's where the context really becomes crucial, because taverns in the 18th century were not as male dominated as some like to argue, but the women at those taverns did not wear the height of femininity about them while they were working. They were running the tavern or they were working in the tavern. They were not in full court dress. They were not attending it. And so even the ultra wealthy who would attend these incredibly luxe taverns they were men and so these were male spaces in terms of patrons 
even though women were in the narrative much more than a lot of scholars of taverns liked to say. Owning a tavern was one way for a woman, for example, to have property without it being seen as untoward or scandalous. But she wasn't running the tavern in full court dress. And so if we start seeing this effusion of feminine finery, and especially if it's located in one area and nowhere else in the tavern and the rest of the tavern contains what would be seen as more of a, a standard expected tavern assemblage, this is where it's really going to start to raise some of those bells for us. You know, they're going to start ringing and say, hey, look, something's happening here. Really interesting. And I can see how definitely a need for both the archaeological and um, written record um, to kind of help meld these together as just a place to start. Because, yeah, just thinking, well, if I saw an archaeological assemblage with like really high fine goods, be like, oh, well, you know, it must have just been women. So it's a, it's a, such a unique dichotomy to think about it in that sense, where when you're ha- putting on these tableaus where you would have mm-hmm. court dress, it's not necessarily what you would imagine as your traditional um, brothel. I don't know. I just, that's absolutely fascinating. Exactly. And so, you know, you're looking at these gendered performances, but it doesn't mean, you know, these aren't. This isn't the presence of women who are prostitutes and working that way. This is the presence of men dressed as women acting out the behavior of women to the extreme. So they would often, you know, there are reports of them getting together and when they would take tea, they would basically try and use the most exaggerated language and body language possible to be as over the top as possible when they gossiped and do various things that were their interpretation of sort of the feminine of what a woman would do and these these birthing scenes again there would be someone dressed as a midwife and someone else who would be pregnant they'd give birth to a wooden baby and all of these participants are men and they would also sometimes have dances where there would be, you know, men and women as couples again in, in, in fine dress. But the women were also men. They were just dressed as women. And so you had some men dressed as men and some men dressed as women for these, these sort of dances that would take place in some of these back rooms. But all of this is incredibly performative. And it's incredibly social. This isn't a single person dressed in female clothing instead of male clothing, getting a drink in a back room by themselves. This is going so that they can be a part of something larger. And there also seems like there's a lot of risk there in that if one person was caught, they would presumably one, it's a bigger gathering, it might attract attention. And two, if one person is caught fleeing that they might be able to name names to kind of get out of harsher punishment so it does seem like they're you given the morals of the time that there was quite a lot of risk associated with Mm -hmm. there was uh, tremendous risk and this is actually largely the way we know about locations of known molly houses is when they were busted and sometimes people would have an idea you know those trying to bust them they would have an idea of where molly house might be and they would infiltrate sometimes for months before they could confirm the location of a molly house and that it wasn't a one-time thing too that someone was regularly doing this and then they would bust up the molly house and they would drag the people out in the outfits they were wearing out into the street where they would be pelted with urine and feces and rotten food they would be stripped of all of their property and executed. And the punishment was equally severe for the individual running the tavern because their knowledge or their sort of stance was there's no way you didn't know that this horrible thing was going on in your establishment. And in so method, there was a big hush. Or did the punishment also cross the, um, the Atlantic? Say that again? Oh, was that only in London with those kinds of punishments or was that in the United States as well? And it was, that was English colonial law. Okay. 
English. So anyone. Yeah. So that was that was the law until it was overturned. It was capital punishment. So there was actually a big hush on a lot of these Molly houses because um, you know, entire families would be destroyed. You know, people would lose their inheritance because this people that visited Molly houses, they were at all rungs of society. And so not only was there perhaps the thrill of, of slumming potentially, but often it really was much more, it seems to be this desire to be with like-minded individuals or individuals interested in the same things, you know, aligned in the same way they're searching for community, the mm -hmm. same way that so many of us in the LGBT community are still looking for, you know, for others, for validation, for friendship for you know just to not be alone right mm -hmm. and so you have all these people of different ranks and sometimes you could there were those who were influential enough who could say that they had been sort of tricked dragged in whatever and, and so a lot of the punishments often fell on those who were not as well connected but mm -hmm. um you would lose everything if you were caught and not just your life i mean it would destroy your family as well and so there was there, there was this sort of hesitance to even talk about it because you wouldn't want to cast shame on a present day family for something that happened in the past mm -hmm. and it's only recently that it's sort of become okay to talk about and that it's become safe to talk about because you're not going to destroy someone's family today because of something that happened in the 18th century but that wasn't the attitude in say the early 1900s or the late 19th century it was still a really big deal so not a lot of research was done because nobody wanted to touch that that's gonna yeah. be a fascinating project oh my gosh it's gonna i just i can't wait till you guys get started on it <laughs> well yeah. definitely right now a lot of archival stuff a lot of you know sort of permissions and everything and um that's kind of the the biggest step Right now, like I said, I've already started uh, making a lot of plans. Originally, I was supposed to be in England already, but COVID. Yeah. So. And it sounds but, like you know, you've got other major projects as well with a book coming out and articles and a chapter and whatnot as well. Absolutely. Yep. So um, I'm under contract with the uh, University Press Colorado and that book is going to be on the archaeology of taverns and saloons and commensal politics so it sort of fits today's talk perfectly but um it'll be called on the table and under it and <laughs> and so that's uh working on the manuscript it's just about finished and then uh there's a chapter that will be coming out fairly soon in the next book in a series uh, on the archaeology of piracy and so the first one was x marks the spot and then Ooh, there was nice uh pieces of eight and so um this is the third one in the series and so that's going to focus a lot on the ties to piracy at smutty nose island nice. mm -hmm. and uh and then the final thing is um i compared sort of the ceramic assemblages and the glass assemblages at both Smutty Nose Island and Highland City uh, for an article in Historical Archaeology, which is sort of the big flagship journal for mm -hmm. my field. And that's been accepted. And so now it's just waiting to find, you know, a space to slot it in. That's so um, exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super, I'm super excited. I definitely made lots of like squealing noises when it was, you know, <laughs> finally fully accepted and everything. But now it's like the big waiting game um, which it is with any journal, just because, you know, you need to figure out, okay, well, if we have a theme issue, it doesn't go there. And then, okay, it's this many pages, so we can't fit it here. So it's a lot to think about to, to go into those, but that's super exciting. Um, uh, sounds like you've got some great, great things at various stages in the pipeline. Exactly. And so they're just, you know, I've been trying to, to steadily chip away at them and all still, despite the, uh, the pandemic um, and a, a chapter came out this summer in a book that is called artifacts that enlighten and it focuses on the champagne bottles at highland so that was fun too and so that was put out by uh, society for historical archaeology's press nice so yep and trying my best to sort of be as prolific as possible because otherwise i think i just go insane <laughs> 
Yeah, that's it's totally fair. We all have to do something to keep us putting one foot in front of the other. Absolutely. And I can't, I can no longer go to taverns and saloons and say it's research because of the, <laughs> the pandemic. So I have to, you know, and, and it's just, everyone looks at you funny when you, you drink alone at home. So I, I have to now write about drinking instead and pine for the days when I can go back to the tavern. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I think we would all like to be able to have a, a bit more normalcy in our life, but it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you so, really so much it. for coming on. Thank yeah. you so much. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been incredible. Um, we've loved, you know, learning about Molly houses and brothels and bars and colonial fishing practices. It's been absolutely fascinating. For audience, if you like what you hear, please um, follow us on Twitter at Women Arkies. If you have a idea for an episode, you can always reach out to us through womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow. Um, thanks so much again, Megan, for, for joining us. And um, you'll have to keep us updated on where all of this fascinating research heads. I absolutely will. Thank you so much again for having me and be well. You too. <laughs> Bye.